0: Welcome everyone to episode 89, MSCs in Vivo. I'm Dr. Kiki here with Dr. Dalen James, and this is the Stem Cell Podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. How are you doing over there, Dalen?
1: We're deep into spring. I wouldn't say deep, shallow into spring, but it's here. It's real. It's in vivo. I'm ready to get some of my Requisite two weeks of spring before full-on blazing summer descends on. Right. You're
0: not under the snow anymore. You're The flowers are coming up. The sun's coming out. Yeah, but you know what's out. sad?
1: It's really sad because all the flowers, they started to bud with that confused spring. I don't know if you ever had that over on the mm-hmm. West Coast, but there was like this little confusing warm spell. The flowers budded and then they got crushed by all the snow. So there's these flowers, but they're all like disfigured and warped <laughs> and sad it's really pathetic it's a sad bloom.
0: the sad spring foliage
1: (laughs) abortive the abortive spring
0: oh no oh my gosh
1: yeah but it's here it's here and it's it's real
0: i know yay spring winter is leaving i'm so excited as well but you know what i'm also excited about tell me this show you know, because it's time for us to get into it. Everyone, make sure you check us out at stemcellpodcast.com where you can find all of our past episodes and other great resources. And of course, follow us on social media at Stem Cell Podcast on Twitter, Stem Cell Podcast on Facebook, and subscribe. Subscribe, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Everybody, we have a great show today, and we're going to be discussing the latest science as usual in stem cell news, and we're interviewing stem cell scientist Fabio Rossi about his work on mesenchymal stem cells, and it's going to be a fascinating conversation.
1: Yeah, he knows a lot about mesenchymal stem cells. You guys are going to hear probably 50% of it. (laughs)
0: Yeah, just, just scratching the surface. All right, Dalen, but before we get into the roundup, now's the time where we normally jump into the roundup, but we have a special announcement today. Longtime listeners might recall that around this time last year, the Stem Cell podcast took a break. The podcast hosts were, the original hosts were faced with a decision to choose between the podcast and their research, and they wanted to keep the podcast going. And so they were like, okay, I got, I want to do my research, but the podcast, it's great. And we have this great audience. And how do we do that? And so they looked for hosts and found me and Dalen to take over as hosts. And it, there was a hiatus, a break in the episodes that came out. And we want to thank our loyal listeners and the sponsors who stuck with the show during that period and during the transition. I hope it wasn't too bumpy or wobbly in the process, but I'm excited that we got to come in. And, you know, one of the sponsors that stayed on during that break and kept the show going was Stem Cell Technologies. And they're a biotech company who sell cell culture reagents, cell separation tools, and accessory products to research labs globally. And the Stem Cell Podcast first met Stem Cell at ISSCR in 2013 as a result of an interview. Just a, hey, we're interviewing a scientist and a relationship began. And one of the things that really stood out about StemCell was their mission to help scientists by providing tools, technologies, and services that scientists can use. And so, for example, we've been introducing before the roundups for a while, Dalen's been doing it, the Connexon newsletters. For the past couple of months, we've been doing this, and they're a free service that StemCell's been providing to scientists for about 15 years just to keep scientists current with the science that's happening in the stem cell community, just like what we do with the Stem Cell Podcast Science Roundup.
1: Yeah, I have to say, stem cell technologies is, I mean, not only do they provide all these amazing reagents and kits that facilitate every scientist's day, but they have these other fantastic communication tools. And I have to say, I've been following both Their posts, you know, following information they throw out there. And I've been using a lot of their kits for a lot of years. They're very dependable. And I admire the philosophy. I remember we had Alan Eves on the show, and that was a revelation to me because this is a guy who's in private industry, really big up. He's made it. He could do whatever he wants, but he's committed to this ideology of stem cells, which is producing great reagents for scientists to use to facilitate the advance of their research and, you know, the knowledge of humankind and cures and all that stuff. So, I feel really good about the relationship and you know it makes sense because the costs of the show they are rising the producers had to look for permanent partner to keep the show going rather than this week to week sponsorship deals that they've been pursuing and with the history that the podcast had with stem cell along with the history that the companies had of supporting science communication made them the obvious choice so that's that the rest is history. The Stem Cell Podcast is now brought to you exclusively by Stem Cell Technologies as part of their mission to support the pursuit of scientific knowledge. The transition officially took place right before the new year, December 2016. You'll notice that, other than our sponsorship content, nothing else about the show has changed. Part of our deal with Stem Cell Technologies is that we'll continue to produce the podcast as we always have. We, that's Kiki and I, and the producers aren't going anywhere. And we'll still bring in the same quality science roundups, guests, and of course, those angry rants.
0: And we've got another good one at the end of the show today.
1: <laughs> Man, I'm angry.
0: Yeah, we always, there's always something to be angry about. But here we're you know thankful and we're excited that we can continue to make this resource, this podcast available to you, our, our audience. So, that we can focus more on the science and not so much the business hunting down financial support side of the podcast. And this partnership with Stem Cell Technologies is going to allow us to do that. And so, coming to the end of this announcement, there is one housekeeping point that is going to impact those of you who subscribed to the Stem Cell Podcast newsletter. The way that the partnership has moved forward due to privacy regulations because of this new partnership. Anyone who wishes to continue to receive the Stem Cell Podcast newsletters must resubscribe. And you can either do this by visiting stemcellpodcast.com or by following the prompts that are going to be coming to you in this week's Stem Cell Podcast newsletter. And if you don't resubscribe, if you don't go to Stem Cell Podcast and resubscribe or follow those prompts coming to you in the newsletter, this week's newsletter is going to be the last one that you receive. And I hope that you like the newsletter and all the stuff that comes in it and that you resubscribe.
1: Come on. I hope you guys heard that because that was a threat. That was a <laughs> veiled threat from Kiki. She pretty much said, you better resubscribe or I'm not talking to you anymore. She
0: no. pulled it. Oh, yeah. I want to keep talking. you better talking. listen
1: because she's serious. She's serious. All right. So that's out of the way. We're current. That's awesome. Now. Let's go to some even more awesome, or equally awesome, at least, uh, the roundup. This week's roundup, it's sponsored by Neural Cell News, which is sent to more than 5,000 neuroscience researchers every week. Sign up in Neural Cell News to keep current with everything that's happening in the neural field. All right, Kiki, it's time. Why don't you bring on some of those general science news?
0: The science that spins me right round. All right, first story in the roundup today has to do with strength, steel, and I'm not talking about Superman. I'm talking about how researchers are trying to make steel, which is one of our strongest substances for making engineering structures, even stronger. How can we help steel get rid of its weakness? The kryptonite of steel is its tendency to develop these microscopic cracks over time the material in the steel these little cracks get started with the shakes and the and the movements of the earth or of how structures move in in the environment these cycles of of stresses make little fractures and then those little cracks continue and they create these straight line fractures through the steel that can eventually lead the steel to collapse. And so this is why, you know, bridges with daily traffic driving over them for a period of 50-60 years might have to be rebuilt because those microcracks turn into larger fractures that aren't readily apparent on observational analysis of this the structure itself. And so researchers are trying to figure out how to make it stronger, publishing in the March 10th issue of Science the study authors have used the structure of bone to allow them to create a new structure for steel. They fabricated steel with thin alternating nanoscale layers of different crystal structures. And these were just unstable enough so that instead of cracking, they morphed under stress. And so instead of these straight line cracks the cracks either don't happen or they branch out a little bit and don't go anywhere. I don't know if you've seen Luke Cage on Netflix, mm-hmm. but you know towards the end of the first season there's this, you know, he's this impenetrable man and they start talking about how the structure of his cells have changed to make him bulletproof. And this is kind of what they talk about. They talk about his cellular structure has turned into this layered structure that, in order to get into it, you have to peel the layers apart. And kind of slide in between them, and so that's a kind of the analogy that I thought of here. Where instead of having brittle bone, a brittle steel that cracks and breaks, you now have something that's more Luke Cage type <laughs> superhero steel.
1: I can expect some Luke Cage action coming out of the lab. When when can I see that? I'm ready.
0: <laughs> Five to ten years. So, this is uh, coming out of MIT, and there's a lot of testing that still needs to be done. But I mean, the if these principles can be applied to a lot of other mixed composition metals, then we might be seeing a lot of stronger materials out there. Pretty cool.
1: I'm all for it. Again, another example if you want it done best, go to nature, make it like the bone.
0: Exactly. It'll be better
1: than anything you can do. Mm-hmm. Silly. Human
0: silly humans, exactly. Go into nature researchers published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences a new frog that was discovered. And you want to know what this cute, nocturnal South American frog is named?
1: Give it to me.
0: It's the polka dot treat frog, it's polka dotted. probably
1: like deadly. Kills you with one <laughs> single micromolar.
0: Yeah, so this frog, Hypsiboas punctatus actually changes its color when it is hit with ultraviolet light. It changes from a dull chartreuse with reddish polka dots to neon fluorescent green. Turns a neon color, neon green. So this is the first fluorescent amphibian that's ever been found. There's a lot of fluorescence that goes on underneath the sea, but there is very little that is found among terrestrial animals and so there are fluorescent qualities in some birds butterflies some insects we know scorpions and some spiders when you throw them under a black light they fluoresce in a really neat color and it's always fun to take scorpions and black lights to schools to show kids they're like ah that's exciting now we can do it with this little frog and The really cool thing about it, though, is that even though we've seen this biofluorescence in the skin or feathers of these other terrestrial animals and also in organisms under the sea, this is a novel chemical fluorescence that's going on. And so there's a group of three molecules, hyloin L1, hyloin L2, and hyloin G1, that seem to be responsible for this glow. But it has an arrangement that's completely unlike other known fluorescence molecules. And so the researcher who was co-author of the study, Norberto Peporin-Lopez at the University of Sao Paulo in Brazil, he says it's a new chemistry. It was a new chemistry. And they don't know why the polka dot tree frog has this fluorescent ability. They think, I mean, usually it's like, oh, this invisible Unless another organism has the ability to see in the UV spectrum, it's invisible. And so maybe it's for mating purposes. So they're going to try and see if these frogs can see their own fluorescence. Can they see in the UV spectrum? That's something that's unknown about these amphibians. They're also going to look to see if other amphibians have this black light, glow-in-the-dark capability. It's something that I was thinking about. There are some predators that have like birds, owls some hawks that have UV sensitivity in their vision. And so something of this fluorescence, it could be communication, but I don't know if maybe they could get picked off more easily by predators, but then maybe that wouldn't have evolved in the first place. I don't know.
1: I know there's some... um... Insects and butterflies, I thought, can see UV and yes. to home in on flowers. So maybe, yeah. maybe it's like a trap. They see the the little flowers, they go to them, and then little polka dot, who thinks all sweet, opens Ready? up his his maw and just gulp kills them.
0: Yeah, oh, that's a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. So novel chemistry, which you know, this that's an interesting point in and of itself. Why this particular chemistry for fluorescence? Where did it come from? evolutionarily. And then also, why are these frogs fluorescent? First, fluorescent amphibian discovered, and it's a polka dot frog. In a study that was presented at the Cognitive Neuroscience Society's annual meeting in San Francisco last week, or two weeks ago by the time you hear this podcast, researcher Stuart Mustofsky of Kennedy Krieger Institute in Baltimore, he's a pediatric neurologist, reported on Studies of the brains, MRI scans of girls and boys ages 8 to 12 with ADHD. Now, it's known that boys and girls have differences in how their ADHD presents behaviorally, and there are some differences related to brain structure. But now, this new study shows that there are differences in areas of the cerebellum that control higher order motor functions. And so, that's very interesting because boys usually present with a different motor behaviors than girls do. Girls have more problems staying focused on tasks and boys tend to have pre-motor and motor circuit deficiencies.
1: Does that mean they like, they bug out and are hyper? Because that's, that's what I'm hearing.
0: That's yeah, so I'm there's poor, poor impulse control and disruptive uh, behavior. And there's also a lack of coordination. So physical coordination is often, doesn't develop in the same way as boys without ADHD. And so this structural difference in the cerebellum between boys and girls could really start to explain why ADHD affects behavioral differences the way that it does. Oh, I have two more studies. Okay, quickly going into the next one. This one, we love Zika, and now it gets even worse. A study, it was reported March 30th in Science. Shows that if individuals are previously infected with dengue or West Nile virus, then that might make their Zika infection a lot worse. Researchers infected mice and they also just infected cells, but the basic idea here is that the cells and mice that were exposed to dengue or West Nile virus first did not survive as much when they were infected with Zika after the fact. Whereas if they were only infected with Zika, they survived just fine. Dengue, and to a lesser extent, West Nile virus, produce antibodies that actually help the Zika virus invade cells and cause the problems that they do. So We found that for Zika infection from mice depended on whether certain viral antibodies were present in their systems. Most of the mice given plasma-free of dengue or West Nile virus antibodies prior to being exposed to Zika survived, and that when those antibodies were present, death. And so uh, what these researchers are saying is that it's going to be very important to consider this as a potential risk factor for individuals, especially in areas like South America, where dengue, West Nile, and Zika circulate at the same time. So these risk factors and clinical histories need to be looked at when patients come in with potential infections.
1: It's like a double whammy. What's the benefit? You know, you get malaria at least, or you have sickle cell, you get your protected against malaria seems like it's all downside for these people in the tropics.
0: I really don't have an urge to go to South America. <laughs> I'm sorry uh, to say it. I'm, like, I'm going to get bitten all. by a mosquito. And <laughs> Put
1: it on the, uh, the bucket list. Maybe when your life is less precious. Yeah. Check
0: it out. My final story is one reported March 23rd in pediatrics where researchers reviewed eight studies on juice and children's body weight and to look at whether, you know, there's this concern. If I give my child juice, are they going to gain weight because juice is just sugar? This review basically found that consuming one serving per day of 100% fruit juice didn't really influence body mass index to a clinically important degree. So kids maybe went from a 50th percentile to the 52nd or 54th percentile if they were drinking daily juice for a year. Mm. You know, this is like maybe a quarter of a pound over the course of the year that can be related to the juice, which they're saying, you know, it's not a lot, you know, but this is not enough to contribute to poor health outcomes and obesity.
1: I get it. They did a study. They found some data. It's true, I guess, but I think it's irresponsible to put out information like juice is good (laughs) although i mean juice isn't bad but i think the the big my big problem with this study having kids is the idea that your kid's going to have one thing of juice a day that's like when you make it special when you normalize juice they're drinking juice all the time i my kids were drinking juice forever all not forever for a little while because we started giving them juice and then we just cut it out and instead of asking for juice they asked for water They would ask for juice three, Mm -hmm. four, five times a day. You drink water, they don't know the difference. I'm against juice. I don't like it.
0: (laughs) Dalen, (laughs) anti-juice. Put me in that camp. Yeah, and when we're talking about juice, this study looked at 100% fruit juice as opposed to fruit cocktails, which are juice and sugar water or combinations of different juices and water. And the study, the way that they looked at it, they didn't actually control for these kids' being given one here's your juice for today and actually control it this is kind of self-reporting by parents in these various studies and it's correlation it's correlational data where this juice drinking behavior was already underway and they tried to relate it to their weight i was like oh well two glasses of juice a day you know yeah Yeah. so this is like seems like post hoc analysis but anyway. Anywho, my son is still not going to get juice every day. He's going to get water, except for special occasions. It's <laughs> the way it works. And
1: instead of having juice, have the fruit, right?
0: Exactly. You want the fiber, you want all the nutrients. Juice is devoid, devoid of good things. Tastes good, but yeah.
1: There's all these movements with like the juicing. I don't know if it's, I'm sure it's over there in, in, in Portland too, but in, yes. in the city, juice, the kale juice. And I, it's notable to me because I'm sure it is healthy and there's a lot of nutrient content, but it's really just the sugary part it's of sugar. all that kale juice. Yeah. A head of lettuce or a head of kale through there to get like half a cup. Yep. What about all that lost fiber? I want that fiber.
0: You want that fiber. Exactly. Go eat a salad. Yes. Go have kids. a piece of fruit, everybody.
1: My kid says, "I want juice." I'm gonna say, "Here's a head of kale. Come back <laughs> to me in about three hours."
0: <laughs> go chew on this.
1: <laughs> all right. Is that all? That's a good note to go off yeah. on. Yeah. Juice it's is juicy. good. No, juice is bad. Yes, juicy. Very good. Very good. <laughs> I'm moving on to stem cells, if you don't mind. Do it. The first study is we've talked about this a lot. You know, the whole proliferation of these mesenchymal stem cell therapies. I think leading to this Nader, we were put on the last show where in the New England Journal, they administered the adipose-derived autologous mesenchymal stem cells to uh, three women in Florida in a Florida clinic, and they went blind. I mean, come on, this is terrible. This is needs to be regulated. We're going to talk about MSCs a little bit today on the show. But this isn't MSCs, but it is a study related to that New England Journal article in, in terms of the fact that it was treating the eye. This is a study that's been ongoing for years. First of its kind, a Masayo Takahashi in Japan was the first to bring iPS cells into play by generating retinal pigmented epithelium and injecting it into patients that are suffering from macular degeneration. So the development in this case is that although there was a patient treated a couple of years ago with their own iPS cells, this is the next wave of those therapies where another patient, a man was treated with a retinal cell transplant grown from donor IPS cells. Okay. They took skin cells from a donor bank, reprogrammed them into induced pluripotent stem cells, and then generated retinal pigmented epithelium, which they injected into this patient. So why is this a big deal? Well, a couple of years ago, this first patient was administered this cell therapy and it went pretty well. The, uh, Transplant was put directly under the retina. A year later, the results show that the, the patient's disease had not progressed, and now, two years after that, the, conti- the patient continues to do well. But there was another patient lined up for this therapy that was meant to receive their own IPS derived retinal pigmented epithelium, and that's when they noticed a little bit of a, a wrench in the works, which was that this patient's IPS cells showed a minor irregularity, a, a minor mutation that could put these cells at risk for forming tumors are being oncogenic. So it was a big issue. They said, well, we got to rethink this whole approach. They went away from IPS derived, which can have these, you know, anomalies a handful of times, so demand a lot more proofing, to going to a a bank where they could generate IPS cells that were well-defined, that were shown not to have any mutations, to be a cleaner cell source, so to speak. And so now they're moving into a new wave of treatments in five patients where they use cells derived from this bank. So this is a big deal. It's a potentially safer technique. And the patient who received the transplant last week is the first of five, as I said, approved for study by Japan's health ministry in February this year. And this is, at this point, just a safety study, but it's really important because this is kind of the tip of the iceberg. It's the the first in-man trials of IPS cells and their derivatives. And as such, it's really important to set the stage for any Future therapies, as the team leader Masaya Takahashi, who's at Riken, told the press conference, we'll have to wait and see for several years until we know whether last week's transplant was a complete success. Mm-hmm. A key challenge to this case is controlling rejection, and we need to carefully continue treatment. Now, this is notable because we also have Deepak Lamba on the show yeah. a few, I guess, months ago at this point, and his paper was really notable because it showed that although everyone has appreciated the I as this immune privileged site, his group showed that if you suppress the immune system, these grafts of retinal pigmented epithelium, in this case, human embryonic stem cell derived, they engraft much more effectively. So it remains to be seen whether a kind of immune regulation is going to be required for this new form of therapy. Because again, remember these cells aren't derived from the patient and therefore are at risk of immune rejection. But overall, I think the consensus is that this is going to be a safer approach. Because these are cellular graphs they're going to live on in the patient. As such, you want to really avoid the potential for them to have any kind of tumorigenic potential.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it seems like from this perspective, using a cells from a donor bank, we've talked before about the possibility of having particular immunogenic phenotypes within the donor bank. So you try and match as closely as you can to minimize immune rejection in the transplant situation. Right. But yeah
1: yeah it's tough but i know i think it's an important line because you know one of the major complaints about ips therapy is that every single time you reprogram someone's cells you got to treat those cells as a new drug you know you have to file an ind with the fda Mm -hmm. and get all the regulatory approval or at least in the current state of the system so this approach where you had one single product that was very well verified may be more practical for widespread application but I guess we'll see, you know, these trials take a long, long time. As Masaya Takahashi mentioned, you know, it's gonna take a while to see if these cell treatments are safe and effective. But I think it's encouraging early results. Certainly better than making a few people blind. All right, so going on to more orthopedic applications as a stem cell fabric innovation. Okay? So every time you throw a ball, swing a golf club, you know. Reach for some high on the shelf, carry your baby. You're doing all those things thanks to your rotator cuff.
0: I know so many people who have hurt their rotator cuff. Uh, (laughs)
1: You're looking at one of them. You're listening to one of them at least. I've had a couple shoulder injuries, labrum specifically, but it's a similar thing. And the reason I had two is because after the first one was repaired, I went right back out there, you know, after my Mm. physical therapy and everything, and the repair got yanked out. You're Why like, because I'm fine.
0: I'm, I can do everything I want. Yeah, cuz
1: I'm an idiot. <laughs> That's part of the reason as you were just, you know, carefully alluding to. But also <laughs> I'm pretty intense. I get out there and I play. But it's nobody's fault. You know, these repairs are really prone to going bad, so to speak. Rotator cuffs problems are really common. There's like 2 million people, okay, affected in the US alone and there're 300,000 rotator cuff repairs every year. 300,000. <sighs> And there's a lot of techniques the surgeons use to reconnect the tendon to the bone, but oftentimes, as in my case, they don't stay reconnected. Up to 60% of the time after injury, there's a re-rupture. That's according to Dr. Cato Lorenson, the professor of orthopedic surgery at UConn Health, who is the leader of the study. And that means more surgery, or worse, learning to live with reduced mobility in the joint. Not an option if you're me. Mm Mm-mm. So, what Lorenz and his colleagues report on the April third issue of the journal plus one is that they may have an alternative approach. they use this nano textured fabric that's seeded with stem cells, and they're using this they're able to get the tendons wrapped in the fabric and enables a better attachment to the bone and These attachments are stronger overall with more advanced cell structure it's more looks more physiological like natural undamaged tissue, and the tendons can be repaired in just this surgically assisted, or I guess fabric-assisted surgical technique, they heal with a more organized cell structure. And you know, that makes the whole repair stronger. The combination of this nanomesh with stem cells, it seems to be really important. Sometimes this has been done. You know, sometimes in these clinics, they have orthopedic applications where they'll just inject stem cells alone after the repair. But the results from that technique have been really mixed for a lot of reasons. But I think the bottom line here is that these investigators are showing is that just putting in the stem cells alone isn't enough. They need a kind of a niche so that they'll both embed into the surgical site and also that they'll thrive. And this mesh that uh, Dr. Lawrenson created, along with his colleagues, was made from a novel nanostructured polymer containing polycaprolactone, if you can believe it, and polyphosphazine, if that's how you say that. So this is new stuff that was pioneered by Laurencine. And what they show is that it provides a really attractive habitat for the stem cells to like hunker down. And once they settle in there, they begin to send out these trophic factors that allow the cells to align and grow into the tendon tissue. So once this tendon is fully regenerated, the mix goes away. It dissolves away. So it leaves no trace. These results are laying the groundwork for regenerating other tendons and other joints, including the knee with long-term goals being the regrowth of entire joints and limbs. Wow. Five to 10 years. Five
0: to 10 years.
1: (laughs) But I'm thinking we'll have to talk. So anyway, it's a good deal. It's another one of these approaches in orthopedics, I think, are really um, advancing in the stem cell field. So good news.
0: That is amazing news. And it, I mean, really though, it's like making me think about, you know, this, what is the environment that these regenerative cells need to be in to heal correctly? Yeah. And as we're going to be talking with our guest later, Dr. Rossi, you know, what are mesenchymal cells doing? What are the regenerative cells doing? How do they interact to
1: yeah, know, create a scar
0: cells. or not create a scar to create a strong tissue or to create a weak tissue? It all goes together. It's fascinating.
1: That's the key. That's the key. And these, notably, these cells that were embedded in this nanomesh were mesenchymal stem cells. So we'll be sure to ask Dr. Rossi about that type of application when he comes on. So moving on, neuro. Okay. So there's a whole range of these tragic neurological diseases. And iPS cells are showing some potential to address them. So specifically, I'm talking about scientists at Case Western University School of Medicine that have successfully grown stem cells from a range of children suffering from devastating neurological disease. Doing this to help explain how different genetic backgrounds can kind of converge on the same symptomology. This work sheds light on how certain brain disorders develop, and it provides a framework for developing, generating, and testing new therapeutic approaches, medications that may appear promising when exposed to one patient, but when you apply them in another patient, they don't exactly work. So this may be an approach of, of understanding that and tailoring these therapies so that they're effective. So this is a new study published in the American Journal of Human Genetics. The team led by Paul Tazar, they developed induced pluripotent stem cells from 12 children, with various forms of pelizaeus mersbacher disease, okay? This is a rare but often fatal genetic disease. And what's unique about it is that it can be caused by any of hundreds of mutations in a specific gene that's critical to the proper production of the nerve cell insulation called myelin. Some children with this PMD have missing or partial or duplicate or even triplicate copies of this gene while other children have just a small single point mutation. So there's so many different causes, and with all these different potential causes, it's really hard for the researchers to zero in on what exactly the mechanism of disease is. And they've been desperate to find effective model for this disease. So using these 12 patient samples during IPS cells for them, they can recapitulate multiple stages of the disease in the lab, in a dish. And they can establish this broad platform for testing new therapeutics, not just on the macro disease, but on each disease specific to each mutation, understanding not only the mechanism of the disease pathology, but unearthing unique therapeutic molecules that may be specifically effective in, that, in treating that pathology. So to quote Paul Tazar, stem cell technology allowed us to grow cells that make myelin in the laboratory directly from individual PMD patients. By studying the wide spectrum of patients, we found that there are distinct patient subgroups. This suggests that individual PMD patients may require different clinical treatment approaches. Okay, and this is another quote by Zachary Nevin, first author author of the study, points toward the therapeutic applications of these cells quote, we use the cells to create a screening platform that can test medications for the ability to restore cell function and myelin. Encouragingly, we identified molecules that could reverse some of the deficits. So this finding is a proof of concept that medications that can effectively act on the pathology within these cells, the specific cells and specific to the mutation in that patient, they can be advanced to clinical testing in the future using this proof of concept therapy with a platform in vitro that can be exerted to derive and identify novel therapeutic compounds. So you always love to hear about anything that makes a disease tractable. The most painful thing, I think, especially with childhood diseases, is not even knowing where to start. So yeah. this is a square one or square, you know, at least moving in, in the direction toward treatments and cures.
0: Yeah, because what actually underlies the symptom is what you want to treat. You don't want to treat the symptom. And so, like this study gets at, there are so many different causes to the exact same physical problem. And so if you can really get at this individualized treatment in a rapid way, especially like in a in a childhood disease, like this is it's
1: changing a life.
0: Yeah, it could change a life. Exactly. Hopefully they can move forward on this fairly quickly to bring it to clinical use. Yeah. I mean, if you could have a, a cell throughput identification system in a hospital, in a children's ward, yes. bam, 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 you know exactly what phenotype or genotype yes. you're dealing with, and yay, and we get there.
1: Personalized mm-hmm. medicine using IPS cells. This is uh, Paul Tazar. This is what he does. They call him the czar, and it's not for nothing. He's going to move this field forward, I can assure you. Yeah. All right. So, you know, we talk about these stem cell clinics in the U.S. and everyone's very wary. And we're going to talk about that maybe with Dr. Rossi in the interview. But I have to say there may be a run on these sketchy stem cell treatment centers after people get wind of this story. All right. (laughs) Stem cells help some men with erectile dysfunction after prostate surgery. Wow. You're going to have to listen for the puns in this one. All right. Men unable to have an erection after prostate surgery enjoyed normal intercourse thanks to stem cell therapy.
0: Thank you, stem cell therapy.
1: It's good for something, at least. This is what scientists reported Saturday at a medical conference in London. I will note this is reported oral communication with some data, I'm sure, to support it. But this isn't a paper, so we can't really judge on the legitimacy mm-hmm. of this result. But it's certainly, certainly exciting. And I just like really to focus on some of the positive results here, okay? So in first phase clinical trials, so these are safety trials, eight out of 15 continent men suffering from erectile dysfunction had sex six months after the one-time treatment without recourse to drugs or penile implants, okay? Now here's where it gets really rich. The positive result showed no signs of flagging during a subsequent year-long monitoring period. I don't know if that means that the positive results didn't flag for a year. That sounds pretty painful. But I can say that at least the results are encouraging. To quote Lars Lund, as far as we know, this is the first time that a human study with a 12-month follow-up shows that the treatment is lasting and safe.
0: It's also 15 men. That's it. And it's 8 out of 15, (laughs) which is, you know... (laughs) But 16 it's, so it's almost it's just barely above 50 percent
1: <laughs> yes but the real question is what if they didn't get the stem cells kiki the results would have flagged okay it would have, there been wouldn't have been a year's worth of erections these men had a year's worth of erections for christ's sake <sighs> you can't argue with the results am
0: i supposed to be and excited you, about that
1: <laughs> well you're not but there's certainly some wives out there that may be excited possibly about it. yes I mean, to quote Lars Lund, it's much better than taking a pill every time you want to have intercourse. I don't know, debatable when you hear about the method of administration. Anyway, the results were promising enough to convince the Danish health authorities to authorize phase three double-blind randomized trials in which one group of men is giving stem cell therapy and another one, placebos, okay? Now, I just think you should note when you're talking about placebo, to perform the procedure, doctors remove fat cells from the patient's abdomen via liposuction the cells then undergo brief treatment and emerge as all-purpose stem cells, meaning that they can mutate, I don't know if the word mutate is appropriate there, into almost any specialized cell in the body. They don't cultivate the cells or change them in any way, according to Lund's colleague Martha Har. But then, I mean, we got to talk here, because the stem cells are then injected into the penis with a syringe, where they spontaneously begin to change into nerve and muscle cells, as well as the endothelial cells that line blood vessels. So let's just talk for a second. Who wants to be a part of that placebo group? Are you going to get placebo injected into your penis? I'm not. Are you going to get injected into your penis, Kiki? I don't. Well, don't answer that. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Um, (laughs) But again, I mean, seriously, these cells, these I can do everything. Stem cells. They, I mean, spontaneously change into nerve and muscle as and endothelial. They're doing it all. Whatever the penis wants, the stem cells will give. I am so, I don't know about this study.
1: It's disturbing. It's It's not a study. It's five, 15 people. I don't think we can call it a study.
0: So I'm going to wait for the phase three double blind randomized trial because that's when real data starts actually coming and hopefully they'll have enough subjects to actually make it, you know, real results.
1: Yeah, well, you know, it's <laughs> it's going to be interesting. Uh, not a lot of people are going to sign up for a study where they're not getting the cells in their penis, you know, because I think there's a lot of guys going to be like, you know, I'm not, I don't really suffer from ED, yeah. but I could use some more cells in my penis. Who couldn't? <laughs> so we'll have to see how that plays out. But you know, maybe a bit of a rush on these clinics and people's penises might be falling off.
0: I wonder if it was going to turn out. You know, there were some. Circumcision studies related to HIV and AIDS in Africa, where they were circumcising individuals, and they, you know, early results come back from these phase three double blind. Well, I guess you can't really double blind, but they're (laughs) doing these trials, and they found a significant statistical difference. And so they in the early phases of this clinical trial, they're like, okay, we have to get rid of the control group because we're finding such a benefit of this practice. Right. So this has happened with, (laughs) with various drugs. This has happened with various surgical procedures in the past that as, you know, maybe they'll only have to do these placebos for a short period of time because it'll be so successful, but I'm highly circumspect.
1: My guess is not, not going to happen. I'll tell you that the the real red flag to me there is how many guys who suffer from ED immediately after the, prostatectomy or prostate surgery regain erectile function on their own
0: eventually down the road i mean the
1: the stats Mm -hmm. aren't there a lot of them do a lot of them do so this is a bit of a of a red herring i would guess you know it's like everything with stem cells we have stem cells let's find a disease to treat in this case inject them in your penis (laughs)
0: <laughs> which you sound very excited.
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm wary. There's Needles. Crazy. Needles. You know, it's funny, with, with the penis, I think it's a yeah. very fine line. You're either like, no way no one's touching my penis, or you're so desperate <laughs> with the restore function of your penis that you'll try anything. Try so anything. you're pretty much on either side of the watershed. You hate the idea, or you're desperately in search of an idea like this. And I'm glad that I'm on the front end of that. For now.
0: We'll see where it goes. And, you know, anytime we can help people with new stem cell therapies. Yes. Potentially good news, right? It's
1: Potentially or potentially it'll make you blind without a penis. I don't know.
0: (laughs) And on that note, (laughs) we're going to finish this roundup. Our friends at Stem Cell Technologies want to tell you about a new product called Cloner. Cloner, C-L-O-N-E, big R, is a medium supplement designed for greatly enhancing the cloning efficiency and single-cell survival of pluripotent stem cells. Unlike current methods, Cloner will enable the robust generation of clonal cell lines without single-cell adaptation, thus minimizing the risk of acquiring genetic abnormalities. Cloner is not available yet, but Stem Cell Podcast listeners can sign up to receive notification when this product does become available. And if you want to receive that notification, if you are interested, you have to go to stemcell.com slash cloner, spelled C-L-O-N-E-R, stemcell.com slash cloner to sign up. All right, so our guest today is Dr. Fabio Rossi. He's a professor at the Department of Medical Genetics, and he's the director of Biomedical Research Center at the University of British Columbia. Dr. Rossi's research looks at a variety of topics, but is here today to discuss with us the role of mesenchymal stem cells in regeneration and fibrosis in vivo. Dr. Rossi, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you very much. Happy to be on it.
0: Yeah, we're really excited to talk with you because in past shows, we've been talking a lot about different uses for mesenchymal stem cells, and so it'll be really interesting to dig into your work. And so why don't we get started by just telling our audience a little bit more detail about your lab and what it's focused on.
2: I have been accused of having scientific ADHD for a relative lack of focus of my lab. But one of the things that most of the lab is working on, meaning like more than half, is the in vivo role of mesenchymal stem progenitor cells. So we have a very different outlook on these cells than many other people that you may have talked to in the past do because we don't look at them once they are taken out of the organism and we are not necessarily trying to understand how to use them as therapeutic tools or drug delivery tools. We are interested in understanding what they do normally during homeostasis and regeneration of adult tissues in vivo.
1: All right, well, this is a good opportunity to maybe clear the air. What are we talking about here in terms of mesenchymal stem cells? Just from my point of view, you know, I've been doing cell culture very specifically, you know, a particular type of cell culture for decades now. And my appreciation of mesenchymal stem cells has been that there's mesenchymal stem cells that are specific for every organ. But pretty much when you get them out of the body, they all look like stroma or like fibroblast type or mesenchymal, generally speaking, cells. And it was this loose definition. And when we talk in terms of the therapeutic aspects, which I know you were just alluding to, people, it seems like they get quote-unquote mesenchymal stem cells from adipose tissue, from any tissue, and use them autologously to inject back in a patient. So can you kind of like specify or, or give us some detail on, on what is the range of mesenchymal stem cells and or are they in vitro totally different from what exists in the body?
2: This is an excellent question and uh, in fact there's multiple questions wrapped into one if I must be completely honest. Now what are mesenchymal stem cells? You know we definitely have a huge nomenclature problem. The term mesenchymal stem cells have been used and I would say abused in the literature for years and uh, ended up giving the impression to people that mesenchymal stem cells have an expanded developmental potential akin to that of almost iPS cells or embryonic level progenitors. If you read in the literature, mesenchymal stem cells can do anything from generating neurons to, you know, remyelinating axons, and that is just simply not the case in our studies in vivo. Now, of course, you could tell me once you put them in vitro, we know these days reprogramming exists, everything is possible, lineages aren't quite as tightly nailed down as we thought they used to be, so things can change once you put them in culture, especially after extended culture. But What we see in vivo is that mesenchymal stem cells have a strong uh, preference for a fibrogenic or an adipogenic fate. Now, the same cells can definitely be induced to making bone, the osteogenic lineage, and cartilage. However, in our lineage tracing studies, and these are only lineage tracing studies in mice, by using a a very wide variety of disease and injury models, we have seen limited contribution of stem cells per se to bone regeneration. This is something that has been shown by others. David Scanlon did uh, some uh, a very elegant experiment years ago showing that actually the stem cell compartment, while it has the potential to make bone, makes very little of it. And most of the new bone created is coming from more committed uh, subsets.
0: So the osteoblast kind of... The
2: osteoblast. Yeah. So what we see in vivo is that in essentially every tissue, with exceptions, we cannot find the cells in the parenchyma of the CNS, for example, even though the meningi are loaded with them. With some exceptions, they are present in every organ. They have a very, very similar surface phenotype and a very similar transcriptome, but not identical. If you look at cross organs and you isolate them from fat, from skeletal muscle, which is one of the tissues we study a lot because of its very efficient regeneration, if you take them out from the kidney, the lung, these cells have the same surface phenotype, the same transcriptome, but small differences in subsets of specific transcription factors. This is very similar, reminiscent to what has been shown for, for example, tissue-resident macrophages. A lot of them, most of them in peripheral tissues, come from the bone marrow, but when they land in a specific environment, they change their epigenome and their transcriptional programs slightly due to environmental influences that we absolutely do not understand at this moment. And so when you re-isolate them, they have slightly different properties, even though they are coming from the same source. Endothelium is similar too. If you look at endothelium, well, okay, there there are multiple developmental sources, most likely, so it's slightly different conceptually. But you look at endothelium in different organs, different tissues, it looks the same, it quacks the same, but it has small differences in expression of certain things. For example, V-cadirin is not expressed in brain endothelium and TIE2 is highly expressed, while tile 2 is not expressed efficiently in the endothelium in skeletal muscle and V-cadirin is. So it's the same with mesenchymal stem cells. And I think they should be considered part of a diffused system, exactly like the immune system and the endothelium and the lymphatics. The nomenclature problem, and you know, guys, I have a tendency to talk too much, so please interrupt me if you think (laughs) I do. So the nomenclature problem has been used for years. So the name fibroblast is usually associated mentally with a boring cell that sits there and just cranks out matrix. Mm -hmm. But in fact, in most other systems, the terminology blast is used for progenitors, You don't call a red cell an erythroblast. You call it an erythrocyte. The erythroblast is the red cell precursor that can create blast colonies, of which you guys must be experts. You know what I mean. Fast-growing, very productive cells. Fibroblast and mesenchymal stem cells may very well be almost the same thing, in my opinion, in most tissues. What people hadn't realized is that When you take these cells, you put them in culture, they very rapidly lose developmental potential. And so you end up with a population of things that are fibroblasts, are boring, they can't do much else, but sit there and maybe grow a bit. The equivalent of the cells that form a scar. In reality, if you look at the markers and the activities, there is a lot of overlap in multiple tissues between mesenchymal stem cells and what people have been calling fibroblasts. Fibrocytes are even worse terminology because nowadays fibrocytes, which should be, in my opinion, based on the rest of the, you know, literature and and classification of cell types, terminally differentiated post-mitotic cells that don't do much else but their job. In fact, now that term is used to identify matrix-producing cells that arrive into the tissues via the circulation makes absolutely no sense. And by the way, in my opinion, they don't exist despite the large amount of literature that claims that they do. So originally I renamed the cells that I was working on and I still use that name into fibrodipogenic progenitors to identify their preponderant developmental potential and also to shy away from the term mesenchymal stem cells because when i try to publish a paper on mesenchymal stem cells there's always a reviewer that asks me oh well if you want to claim they are mesenchymal stem cells you have to show me they make neurons and that's just simply it's like (laughs) fake news is the term these days something that Trump may claim
1: (laughs) (laughs) so talking though about i mean just Getting back to this idea, I guess I'm kind of confused in terms of endogenous mesenchymal stem cells. They have a propensity to go adipose or yeah. uh, fibroblasts. Is that what you said? Yeah,
2: fibrogenic. Yeah, fibroblasts. So
1: fibrogenic. My appreciation of, the, of fibrogenic is like pathological. Fi- yes. Uh, you know, when you're talking about the endogenous fate of these MSCs, is that usually in the context of injury or some other pathological situation? Or is there like normal steady state? MSCs that are doing like a more regenerative fibrogenesis?
2: My Lord, you just set me up to speak for 45 minutes. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> the thing that you need to understand is that MSCs have multiple roles at different times during the regenerative time course. And I am mostly referring now to the studies we have done in skeletal muscle, but very similar behaviors have been observed in a range of different tissues in the presence of injury. And now I'm talking about acute injury because chronic injury is yet another case, another scenario in which MSCs behave differently. Let's take the example of the acute damage into skeletal muscles, something that you know happens to you when you play soccer and someone bumps to your leg and you get a big bruise and it repairs very well in healthy young people. So the first event that takes place at the cellular level there is the infiltration of inflammatory cells, neutrophils, eosinophils come in very early. The second event is the activation of mesenchymal stem cells or as I call them, fiber progenitors, FAPs. And uh, these cells enter into cycle and they expand very rapidly and it's impressive. If you look at lineage tracing, the whole tissue is taken over by this cell population within the space of three days. During this uh, rapid expansion, the cells seem to mostly express secreted factors that are related to inflammation. They express chemoattractants, they express uh, things that will activate and attract inflammatory cells from the circulation into the damaged area, and we know that inflammatory cells are extremely important for regeneration. But the interesting thing is MSC seems to be the main directors of these orchestrated activities. The fact that they are used in an anti-inflammatory way in therapies, in the clinics, is interesting. is not completely incompatible with the fact that we see them, you know, organize inflammation. We usually see them in a pro-inflammatory role early in, in, in regeneration. People tend to use them as anti-inflammatories. And I think that role is actually a potentially real role of in vivo mesenchymal stem cells in the later terminal phases of the regeneration. You will will ask, is it possible that by putting them in culture, you're mimicking that stage? And I say it's absolutely possible. So I'm not completely opposed to the rationale of MSCs as anti-inflammatory, although it would be finally nice to know how exactly the mechanism that they use to do so. The next stage is a stage in which the mesenchymal stem cells turn on a fibrogenic program that we call transitional fibrogenesis. This lasts in skeletal muscle regeneration maybe two or three days. And during this period, the cells express a number of matrix components that are transiently deposited in the matrix during regeneration and later remodeled away. At this point, the MSCs are targeted by immune cells and killed actively. Through induction of apoptosis, we have shown that TNF-alpha plays a big role. We have additional signals now that cooperate with TNF-alpha to time the death of the MSCs at the right moment. Before they die, though, while they are making the transitional matrix, they also make a number of goodies for the endogenous stem cells that are actually doing the job. In this case, in muscle, will be the muscle stem cells, the satellite cells that generate new myofibers. One of the key goodies they produce that we have shown has a big impact on myofibers is IL-6, for example. IL-6 is well known as a pro-myogenic cytokine. And in fact, IL-6 upregulation during regeneration happens essentially in every organ in the body. And we know that these cells are the main producers of IL-6, even more than the inflammatory cells that are in the tissue. You go from a pro-inflammatory phase to a trophic, stroma rebuilding phase, and then you switch to a final phase in which the number of these cells are now dwindling because of this apoptosis effect of inflammation. And these cells at that stage, they mostly tend to generate components that rebuild the damaged basement membrane, which, you know, every myofiber has a basement membrane that sheets it, and every way basement membranes are common stromal components in most organs and tissues. The timing of these phases is very important for regeneration to be efficient, and also the quality of the transcriptional programs. For example, the matrix that is generated during this transitional matrix deposition that then disappears and is a normal event during regeneration is different from the matrix that these very same cells will generate. When things go awry, regeneration fails, and you get a a scar. Essentially, fibrosis is an interstitial scar.
0: For example, just for a little tangent moment, is this the process that occurs, like this scarification? Is this the process that occurs, like, say, during multiple sclerosis, where the myelin sheath is injured by the inflammatory system? And then you have regeneration, but it's not right. It's sclerotic.
2: Right. But remember what I told you in the CNS is slightly different.
0: Different. Okay
2: because these cells are only in the meningi and uh, maybe following the large vessels as they go in, but not very long, just until the meningial sheets are there. So in the CNS, scar formation is a more complex system that includes astrocytes and includes a number of other cells. And the CNS is special. I told you at the beginning, you know, we, for the CNS, we would have to have a completely different conversation.
1: But that said, in all other organs, peripheral organs, where you have fibrosis, especially in comorbidities with other pathologies, it is the MSCs that that Absolutely. fibrosis is derived from? I see. No that. doubt. I and mean, is that a derangement of that tripartite, that three-stage thing? Or is that just a matter of, like, with chronic injury, as you were
2: alluding to earlier? It's definitely a detachment from the normal acute damage regeneration. But I don't know if you can consider it a derangement. It's a biological process that has a rationale behind. Back when we were evolving from tree dwellers to, you know, savannah runners, and the saber-toothed tiger would take a chunk out of your behind every once in a while. The last thing you want is a big gaping hole there. You want to plug it with something, even if it's not functional. So forming a scar is, is critical. The classical example is after a myocardial infarction. If you do not form an efficient scar, essentially you die because, you know, you have a balloon trying to push blood out and the part of the balloon is weakened and it balloons out every contraction, your blood is not going anywhere efficiently. I wouldn't call it an aberration, but certainly it's something that like many other things that have a rationale behind the immune system can get out of control in the wrong situations. And chronic damage is one of these situations. In chronic damage, what we find is the quality of the inflammatory milieu is altered, and these proapoptotic signals fail. At this point, the mesenchymal stem cells that are supposed to you know, die without really leaving any progeny behind, because their main role is secretion of matrix, secretion of factors, coordination of other cells' activities, now they don't die anymore. They hang around they get exposed by the high level of pro-fibrogenic cytokines that are expressed in uh, chronically damaged tissues, tgf betas you know, wins, the usual players. And they enter a different fibrogenic program that now, for example, has much reduced expression of good collagens, like collagen-6, at the expense of bad collagen, like collagen-1.
0: And when you talk about good versus bad collagens, it's maybe a collagen that's more flexible versus a collagen that's more rigid.
2: Well, there's many ways of seeing it.
0: Structurally, what's bad or good?
2: <laughs> I'm not an expert into that. I think you should ask a Minkano transaction guy. For
1: <laughs> All right. The greater point there is good and bad collagen, but maybe a better description would be appropriate collagen.
0: Appropriate. For the yeah. organ.
1: Because, yeah. I mean, it brings to this, I guess if we're talking about how we're trying to exploit mesenchymal stem cells in these new therapeutic approaches. Where do you come down on that? Because it seems to me that taking mesenchymal stem cells that were born and meant to live and have function in adipose tissue may be doing something different in terms of collagen deposition when they're put into the eye. And of course, I'm talking about this study that was in the New England Journal.
0: We talked about it in the last
2: show. Yeah, Right, we talked about it with these patients
1: going blind. So how do you think that these... Therapeutics are. Where do you come down on that?
2: I must say that the rationale for using the MSCs as drug delivery factories, let's say, I think you know that could be developed into something solid. But the problem is that, as I told you, the MSCs timing is very important for their function. There's phases that they go through, and these phases need to be neatly organized because if you start blurring the boundaries then you end up in fibrosis. The cells get confused, let's say, even though physiological confusion is meant to be, and you end up in fibrosis. So just taking the cells, putting them in culture, growing them up and putting them in, I have no idea at which functional stage they would be at that point. I have no idea. You know, the first thing I assume is going to happen is you're going to deliver the cells and there's going to be some kind of reaction to the cells, especially in a damaged organ, that will recapitulate the normal progression, so they will be wiped out by apoptosis, essentially. And this is essentially what has been shown to happen post-MI, when mesenchymal stem cells are injected in the heart. Most of them are not there anymore after a few days. Of course, you know, there is a huge problem there because you can't really trace the cells efficiently when you put them in human patients. And when we put them in the mouse, I can guarantee you we can trace every single one of them. And a lot of them die. And this is not a mistake. This is what the body is supposed to do to these cells when they expand beyond a certain limit. From that point of view, I'm having a hard time understanding the rationale of delivering MSCs and expecting a long-term effect. There may be a short-term effect because, well, even inducing a lot of cell death in a short amount of time has an effect on the tissue. And as I told you, they do produce trophic factors, although I cannot guarantee to you that they are in a state in which they will produce trophic factor after the manipulations. But the part that I find dangerous is the idea that people forget that if they get them to survive, which, thank God, is hard, they will be at risk of these cells generating some kind of fibrotic scar, some kind of fibrotic infiltrate, because that's their job if they actually survive this regenerative environment. I don't know if that answered your question.
1: No, absolutely. It's notable because there's a lot of uh, MSCs that are in clinical trials, but they're in trial for a lot of things, but mostly for things that are not really demanding a direct cellular contribution, as you're saying, like graft-versus-host disease, by their anti-inflammatory function. But what you're saying is that even with those therapies where you don't really want a cellular contribution, there is the risk of having a cellular contribution that could be some pathology in its own.
2: I think the risk is low because the body is going to be very efficient at killing the cells as soon as you inject them in there. I'm just saying that this is seen as a limitation of the therapy. And uh, what I'm trying to point out is that once we overcome this limitation, we may encounter worse problems now. <laughs>
1: yeah, I see. I see. It's, it's not like, a
2: limitation for no reason. I, yeah. I haven't been able to nail down a clear anti-inflammatory effect of MSCs in vivo. But at this moment, considering the clear organizing role that they have on the inflammation during regeneration, I would not be incredibly surprised if they did have some kind of role in turning it off as well as turning it on. And so the trick there is going to be to understand exactly at which stage, you know, what kind of functional status the MSCs that you inject need to be in to have the maximal effect.
0: Yeah, and while they're developing, building that transitional matrix for the regeneration, actual regeneration of the tissue, what products are they creating that are maybe signaling to other cells to calm down?
2: Exactly. And this actually, I think that those signals may actually take place after the matrix rebuilding. I think is a maybe yet a fourth stage, possibly overlapping with the rebuilding of the basement membrane that I was telling you about.
0: What role does epigenetics play at this point? We're talking about non-coding regions of DNA that produce RNA elements that signal and regulate you know, these processes. Like, uh, Where are we with this, our understanding of that in mesenchymal cells right now?
2: they at a very rudimentary step. And the reason for that is because the agreement on what the markers that you can use to fish out mesenchymal stem cells from tissues and look at the epigenetics immediately without going through cultural steps that of course we all know what vitamin c does to dna methylation i don't know if you guys have followed this in respect you know so the point is what you want to do is uh, digest the tissue sort the cells and look at the epigenetic max as fast as you can and even then you know this wouldn't work for signaling because by the time you digested the signal the tissues are changed but the epigenetics may be a little slower to change So we were lacking the lineage tracers and the the surface markers combinations to do this. Now I believe we have them. And uh, we have started in our lab and in collaboration also with the guy upstairs that Michael Underhill you should interview at some point. We find that there are differences in the epigenome of these cells depending on the tissue we fish them out from. And we think that some of this epigenetic difference may be responsible for those small changes in, in uh, function that we can detect in cells taken from different sources, which is, would be perfectly compatible mm-hmm. with the situation in, in tissue resident macrophages, which also have been shown to have accumulated epigenetic differences after they land into the tissue where they will reside. But, yeah, I unfortunately, I will not be able to speak for half an hour on that topic. I know <laughs> this, our knowledge is very rudimentary at this point
1: okay, but you can imagine though a uh if there were it's something that would well, i guess the better question is a is this like a classical stem cell that is a self renewing or asymmetric self renewal and does that account for how, with increased age the the regenerative process in organs is diminished? Would you attribute? Why my back
0: muscles are more and more sore the older I get? (laughs) Why it takes longer to recover from a workout?
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's the question. Why these old bones are struggling to to recover so more? Is that an MSC-based phenomenon? And if so, do you think it's because they're just wearing out?
2: I don't think they're wearing out. In fact, in the limited number of aging studies we did, we find the number of the cells is increased. But they seem to be more propensed to go down a fibrogenic pathway. Mm -hmm. And we do not know if this is a cell autonomous or an environmental effect. As you know, whether aging is cell autonomous or environmental is a controversy for the ages these days, right? So, yes, we do see an increase in the cells. We do see a change in the way they tend to behave toward more matrix production. We haven't got the foggiest idea what the drivers are, the mechanism driving this are at the moment. You know, aging experiments are somewhat expensive. Right. <laughs> and, yeah, we need aged mice. But there are changes in that population. I just don't know why they come about. Yes. And not in the sense that there is less of less active cells, there's more cells.
1: Wow, so that's atypical, I guess. Although maybe that's like, a, I'm just thinking of parallels to like hematopoiesis.
2: It's not completely atypical. If you think about hematopoiesis, there are a bunch right. of reports that there are more phenotypically, apparently, stem cells, but that their function is impaired. And again, it's an autonomous versus environment.
1: Oftentimes, now, though, that manifests as malignancy. Is there such a thing as a mesenchymal stem cell derived, like a mesenchyoma or something like that?
2: Well, you know, the mesenchymal cell-derived tumors are called sarcomas, and there's a few of them. But they're actually not very common tumors. Like if you work in fat, how common is an adiposarcoma? It's a very rare event. One of the reasons, I think, but here I'm completely hand-waving, is that, that the body has very tight mechanisms to control these cells that may not exist to control other cell types. Because other cell types are not meant to expand massively and then contract massively in the space of a few days, Mm -hmm. right? But, you know, as I said, this is hand-waving at this stage. An hypothesis. Now, let me address the other question you asked, because are they real stem cells? This is an excellent question. I can sort a population that looks pretty homogeneous, and we have even gone to, this is all unpublished, but, We've even gone to the single cell level with, uh, you know, the next genomics single cell sequencing. We think that the cells, they seem to be pretty homogeneous within skeletal muscle, for example. Is there a subset that is more capable of self-renewal? We don't know yet. Nobody has ever looked in mesenchymal stem cells for that, except using transplantation and other things that require passages in vitro. And essentially, they're sure that they can self-renew in vitro, but yeah, I say, so what? You know,
0: That's not in vivo. Any
2: fiber self-renews in vitro, right? So we are actually doing that experiment, but you need to ask me again in about six months. We are doing it with the sleeping beauty <laughs> transposal clonal tagging right wow. now, right?
1: Very elegant.
0: Yeah, maybe we will have to have you back in six months so that we can talk to you about those results, find out what happened.
2: You know, it's going to be six months to do the experiment and then a year and a half to get the paper publish, published. <laughs> right. <laughs> there is one question you didn't ask me, so I'll ask it to myself if you guys don't mind. Of course. And that is the role of these cells in tissue homeostasis. Mm. Right? Are they doing something when there is no damage around, where they're just sitting there? Now, a year ago, I would have told you, I don't know, I have no evidence thereof. Right now, we have taking advantage of a number of new transgenic models we have built that allow lineage tracing and tissue-specific knockouts in these cells, we have started to, pardon my French, mess with the signaling pathways. We find that alterations of the signaling pathways in these stromal progenitors have a huge impact on the function of the parenchyma of the tissue. In muscle, we have Inducible transgenic models in which we can lead to muscle wasting, similar to what's seen in tumors or aging, within a few weeks of activating it. And they are specifically activated in the stroma. We are not touching the myofibers, and yet the myofibers are half the size a few weeks later. So, there seems to be not just a trophic effect of these cells during regeneration, but a significant trophic role of these cells in the normal maintenance and homeostasis of tissues.
1: Wow. So, this is you knocking out specific secreted factors within the MSC compartment, actually, or it's changing their
2: transcriptome? I'm actually knocking out a key. Uh, signaling components, signaling cascade components. So I'm preventing these cells from responding to certain secreted (laughs) facts. I see. Okay. Wow. And And that alters their status enough that you get, you know, all hell breaks loose in the tissue. So (laughs) this is going to be very, very interesting over the next couple of years. And again, you know, it may suggest that those therapies that are being tried are not completely without rationale. You know, it's just odd for me to think that the therapies were started before we even had a clue that there was a rationale, (laughs) (laughs) right? (laughs) But sometimes, you know, you have to go that way. Yeah, it wouldn't be the first time, right? That's what I was going to say. (laughs) A lot of treatments
1: came out of nowhere.
2: Although, you know, like Paolo Bianco said a few years ago, the late Paolo Bianco, you know, normally when you don't have a rationale for a therapy, you start using it because it works really well. And then you figure out why. In this case... We don't have it yet. <laughs> it works well. <laughs> no, we don't have it. I should not.
0: Silly, is it?
2: <laughs> yeah, that is funny. I always thought it was desperation
1: that drove all these MSC trials. You're, you're dealing with conditions that really have no other treatment, but now it seems like they've proliferated to treat a lot of, of things, almost anything you can think of. And yeah. there's a trial there for MSC. So I guess it, it's really just the accessibility that makes them so prevalent in clinical trials because you can get autologous quote-unquote, MSCs, expand yeah. them and put them back in. But I think that those days are, are coming to an end. I think that maybe the strictures on cell therapy are going to be a little bit more intense. Would you agree with
2: that, or do you think
1: we're moving in the other direction?
2: Well, I'm not so sure. I mean, before we started this conversation, you were mentioning the Japanese study in which they put IPS cells in the you know, RPGs, or so retina pigmented epithelium, from IPS cells into human patients' eyes. That movement, that is the tip of the iceberg of a very large movement that includes all the right to trial legislation. I think it's 22 states in the U.S. that now have adopted right to trial legislation. Those things are meant to lower the barrier to do experiments such as MSC therapies, right? Whenever there is no reasonable alternative, the idea is that the patient that is desperate, as you said, has a right to try something, even though it's not completely you know, understood whether it will work or, or not. So those things will probably support and expand the use of these MSCs in therapies. But you're right, it's mostly driven by accessibility and the fact that for the clinician it's really used easy from a regulatory point of view to use minimally manipulated autologous cells and stick them anywhere they want.
0: I hope that it moves forward at a clinical trials of these cells and the right to try stuff moves forward a little bit more slowly so that the work that you're doing and the basic yeah. understanding of the science behind how these therapies could work come to be even. I mean, that would be ideal.
2: <laughs> you know, the problem is always the usual one, right? Mm-hmm. If you try with, before you understand what you're doing, you may not get the result that you could be getting and then turn the whole public opinion and funding agencies off and against that approach that it could actually have worked if you did it properly.
0: Which kind of happens, you know, in the RNA interference world and trials, they did a little too soon. And there were some other stem cell studies that were done a little too soon and it slowed things down a bit. And Exactly.
2: Gene therapy, you know, there's a list of of, of examples, right? You don't
0: want to scare the public away from it with kind of the Dr. Moreau type experiments.
2: (laughs) Although I'll be completely honest, I think the public is not scared enough right now. Yeah. I mean, I I give a a number of late presentations, and the number of people, and usually fairly, you know, well healed people that come to me and say, Oh, I've been to Mexico and I got some therapy, (laughs) Uh, mind boggling. I mean, in a way, when you're exposed to this population of people that really they'll just go and pay $50,000 to be injected with things that probably won't do very much, probably not too much damage, but not too much good either, you realize that maybe we should do this kind of things in Canada.
0: Where there's universal health (laughs) care.
2: And at least we'd be able to provide them with a product that is really safe, if not efficacious, if you see what I mean. Yeah. This is a, a huge ethical problem in the field, I think, and is not really discussed enough. I don't know what, what has to say.
1: Well, you've said it all. I think the truth is, is that figuring out the mechanism by which these cells work at steady state, in pathological conditions, in vitro, and vivo, that's the key, right? So moving toward Absolutely. that understanding, maybe we can rescue some of these people who are going blind with
2: autologous stem cells. Absolutely. And eventually we'll get there. I have no doubt You know, I don't know if it's going to be the MSCs that will rescue vision. Don't get me mm wrong. But eventually cell therapies, I think, are coming back because of uh, many reasons and mostly probably CRISPR-Cas and its potential. Mm -hmm. And so I'm sure the guys at stem cell technologies won't mind if that happens. Uh
0: Well, thank you so much for your time today. This has been a wonderful conversation. I've really enjoyed getting a chance to speak with you and hear what you're doing.
1: Sorry, if I talk too much, no no that's all i do is talk so i mean between us this is gonna be a two hour long show
0: <laughs> and people are gonna love it fantastic Excellent.
1: well your end of it at least i'm sure anyway thanks right. for uh, speaking to us a lot of fun yeah, my pleasure
2: anytime bye guys bye take care All right, Kiki, that was Fabio Rossi,
1: one of the most delightful guests we've had on. I love Italians. He's such a good-looking man and so elegant in his scientific approach and has a real profound knowledge and understanding about mesenchymal stem cells in vivo, what they really do. What do you think about that interview? You had fun with
0: that? I did. I really I really enjoyed hearing what he's working on and hearing his perspective on the nomenclature and, and you know how we actually are identifying the cells. You know, are we identifying the correct cells? When you're just saying mesenchymal stem cell, what does that mean? And so I think that's really important. And then going from there to you know his disease modeling to also the importance of looking at what these cells are doing homeostatically. You know, how are they just how are they existing in the tissue? What role do they play? Like what is going on there? I think there's so many intricacies to how these two ways of going about the research work together to tell us that full picture of how we can potentially correct disease state in humans. What can we use and what can we go with in the future? that was great.
1: That was a good time. Fabio Rossi, ladies and gentlemen.
0: Oh, yeah. (laughs) And at this point, let's close the show. My brain just like shut down there for a second. (laughs) It's like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do now. Uh, You know what? It is time for us to have our Stem Cell Podcast rant. And this rant is our chance to complain, complain, complain about something that bothers us and that most likely bothers you. Dalen, what are we ranting about today?
1: Well, you know, it's coming up on spring break. Spring break for the public school system, I think, at least in New York will be just a week behind us when this is posted. Or we'll be in the middle of it, actually. Oh, my goodness. And if you're in the middle of it, you may recall Spring Break's Pass if you're a parent. I certainly do. Probably the worst Spring Break I ever had. I, like many parents of young children on Spring Break, made a huge mistake of traveling to Disney World. Disney World, uh, where kids go to have fun and parents go to die. It's
0: the it happiest probably, place on earth. Come uh, on. Maybe.
1: Maybe. I don't think it's happy. It, I was horribly depressed by all of the humans that were scurrying around. And I don't want to be dismissive. I love all types and all body types and all shapes. Okay? I love you. But you can't ride around in a rascal just because you're overweight. Okay? You got to walk it off. I know Disney World's big but that's not a medical condition. You got to walk, you got to walk and you can't ride the rascal with the kids in the lap. Not to mention, I mean, those rides. Kiki, have you been to Disney?
0: I've been to Disneyland, not Disney world. And oh. yes, you know, I've been, I went many times when I was young and I remember it being fun and happy, but I went a couple of years ago during spring break with my in-laws and their kids and my son and husband and it was one of the worst days of my adult life.
1: One day? Oh, you got away with doing just one day? You're oh, so lucky.
0: We were potentially going to go for multiple days. And I we got there. It was expensive. And then there's all the people. And then the two-hour lines. And I just, I kept looking around. And I'm like, why am I doing this? <laughs> I honestly don't care enough about this particular brand to be putting myself through this and then all I wanted was a beer
1: (laughs) no and there's like
0: no place to buy a beer
1: nope so then
0: we had to go to the California Adventure and that turned into a much better day for me after that leaving Disneyland was the best thing I did that day
1: (laughs) I was stuck there for five days five days in Disney hell and I got to do maybe seven or eight rides no kidding so, I don't know. If you're thinking about Disney World, it's probably too late. You're probably there listening to this podcast right now saying, mm. thanks for telling me.
0: Thanks a lot.
1: Now. But, you know, there's always next year. If you haven't gone, don't go. Do yourself a favor. Your kids can get there themselves. Tell them they can go when they're in high school.
0: Don't go during the spring breaky time, at least. Yeah, you know, okay. go during That's the off advice. season. I mean, That's good find a time when there won't be all the people there.
1: <laughs> yeah, Or don't go at all.
0: I mean, if you, some people enjoy the Disney brand and everything, and, you know, it's a big thing for some people to go and see the princesses and the rides and all this stuff and go, but if you want to have a nice time and you want to do it for your kids and you don't want to, I don't know, have panic attacks, <laughs> <laughs> not spring break. That's my advice. I
1: disagree. I disagree. <laughs> I'm more hard-edged. I say don't go at all. Okay. Go to like Bush Gardens. Save You're all right. that stuff. All right, go, take your kids to like the Disney store, buy them a, a Lego or something. Go to a movie. Disney, you'll regret it. You'll regret it. It's a lot of stress.
0: Oh, let's end the stress. My I think my cat's going to cough up a hairball right now.
1: Oh, my gosh. Show <laughs> me. Take a <laughs> specimen.
0: I know. No. no more stress, everybody. We're going to move on forward because you know what? This ends the Stem Cell Podcast. Be sure to send us your rant ideas on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or email stemcellpodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to go to stemcellpodcast.com or to uh, follow those links in your newsletter to resubscribe to the newsletter. We've done what we are here to do. Our science news, our interview. Once again, really fun show. I hope you all enjoyed it and be sure to tune in for our next episode. Where we'll bring you more stem cell science and the latest, greatest stem cell news. Dalen, I'm looking forward to next time.
1: As am I, Kiki. It's going to be good.